This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 14. Today we will talk about the Coen Brothers cult comedy film, Raising Arizona, starring Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. My name is Harry, and I'll be your host for today's show. And I am Jeff, I will be your co-host. So Jeff, this is the first Nicolas Cage movie we're doing for the podcast, and if we're lucky it won't be the last, but this is also, we're doing a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, I know you really like the Coen Brothers, and you've mentioned you hadn't seen this one before, so that surprises me. Since we always reminisce about the topical movie in question at the start of each podcast, do you have any memories about the existence of Raising Arizona? Or maybe if you don't, or if you don't have much information there, how about you let us know your thoughts on the Coen Brothers and what you find so interesting about their work? I don't have a lot of memory of the film. I was aware of its existence. I had an idea of the, you know, the, the general plot. I don't know that I was aware that this was a Coen Brothers movie you know, for a long time. It, it never really crossed my radar. It sounded kind of goofy. You just listen to the synopsis. It sounded kind of goofy. So never really captured my interest. As far as the Coen brothers go, yeah, I don't love all, all of their movies, but there are a few of their films that I really, really do enjoy. They really like to tell the, the crime a crime story, right? So that, you know, often their, their stories deal with criminals or uh, some type of investigations. Often their protagonists are half-baked uh, idiots, not always, but uh, often. So they take uh, some tropes and they, they, you know, they play with them. They do different things with them. They're, you know, they're not the most conventional filmmakers, so which I appreciate. Their humor is always very, it's very layered. It's very intelligent humor uh, without being snobby. So, you know, those are some of the things that I really dig about them. And they're, they're very good writers uh, as well. They're, uh, you know, dialogue is always spot on. So I haven't seen all of their movies, but I've seen most of them now. And it's, you know, it's nice to, kind of go back and and uh, experience one of these for the first time. It's good to know. Yeah, for me, I'm not really too much of a Coen Brothers fan. I agree. I think their writing is fairly strong, but I think in terms of the finished product of a movie, I find a lot of their work slightly overrated. I seem to mostly get what topic or even maybe lack of topic they're trying to you know point at or make fun of or what commentary they're trying to make. I just find like, especially when it comes to some of their humor, I find it not to be that funny. I think I prefer a little bit more of their serious works. Um, so let's see if it applies to Raising Arizona here. I don't want to give out my thoughts too early and see if Raising Arizona is different. And I'm curious to see how this movie stacks up for you in terms of the standard of um, Coen Brothers uh, for you. Uh, I did watch this movie a very long time ago when I was young. and I, did, I don't have a lot of memories about it, aside from the fact that Nicolas Cage had a baby I seem to recall he was kind of a hipster doofus kind of guy, but that was back in the 80s. And I really recall my cousin, really older cousin, really raved about this film. And so I have mm-hmm. some vague recollection that I liked this movie when I was young. So I was interested in watching it again since it had been so long. But before we get into the, to the movie, I do want to briefly touch upon The Cage. <laughs> the Nick Cage. cage. <laughs> the Cage, yes. Yeah. So the question, what are your thoughts on The Cage? Like overall? Overall. Like just, you know, say what's on the top of your head there. Oh, I mean, Nick Cage is all kinds of shit crazy, isn't he? I mean, and don't get the wrong idea. I mean, I, I've always been a fan. I, I actually think he's a very talented actor. He's very unique. There isn't anybody 
who looks like him. There isn't anybody who performs like him. He's done some really interesting projects over his career. I guess what comes to the top of mind is, is wasted potential. And the reason I say that is because it seemed like, you know, right when his career was really taken off, like late 90s, early 2000s, and things just took a, took a wrong turn. You know, and you know it's really unfortunate because he was starting to do some good stuff. We've talked about The Rock a couple of times. You know, he's kind of zany in that movie, but you know, that was the type of film that was you know really launching him into the stratosphere. She followed up with Con Air, which a lot of people like, and I think is a bag of shit. And then after that, uh, you know, he he didn't really do a lot. And you know, obviously the financial troubles uh, that he got himself into. You know, I couldn't pay, you know, he, he had to, he has to hey, and he still does. He has to take everything that comes across uh, his desk. And that's, that's really unfortunate because I think he could have been a much bigger star than he ended up being. I put some thought into this and I think Nicolas Cage is one third of my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the other two thirds of your spirit animal? Oh, no. my <laughs> Shatner and Avery Brooks, of course. I see. Okay. That's... <laughs> That's one fierce three-headed beast. Oh, yes. <laughs> Doesn't explain a lot, though. It, it explains a lot. I hope that that creature has the uh, the sideburns that those two <laughs> men would, at least two of those men would demand. I agree with you. I think it's a, a bit unfortunate. I think he is actually a, a brilliant actor who has a lot of range. He doesn't have the restraint is one one way of looking at it, but he's not afraid to really let his emotions go while he's making a movie. He seems like he pours his entire heart and soul into making a movie, whether it's a A-list movie or, you know, the most dog shit movie you've ever seen that goes uh, straight to video on demand or whatever. And I agree with you, I think, because, you know, he was getting a lot of money, he got into, you know, buying all these castles and comic books and then all these <laughs> other things. He got into money trouble and he owes a lot of money to the IRS and he lost a lot. So I think he's just in the last decade, I agree. I think since after the early 2000s, I think the last 10, 12 years, he's just been making shit movie after shit movie because there's he's just desperate to get himself out of this trouble. And yeah. when you're talking about movies that probably are offering a lot of money, they're probably like if you want to make a small, independent, dramatic film that can kind of, you know, do something different and stretch your interests, you're not going to be paid a lot of money. But if you're going to be making some other shit movies, they'll throw $5 million at one guy like Nicolas Cage and, you know, the dog shit to the rest and the movie's dog shit. Yeah. So that's probably what he's trying to do since then. And he's also getting older, too. So I'm sure he's not getting the A-list invites anymore, which is a real shame because I agree. He is an actor yeah. who has a lot of range. And I like a lot of his dramatic roles from the 80s and 90s. And I think he's... He's a fantastic actor, in my opinion. I always enjoy watching Nicolas Cage in, in anything, even if it's a shit movie. He never mails it in. He's no. always, uh, as you said, he pours everything into it. And he has had some really, really good roles. Even in movies that are kind of so-so, he's had some some good roles in some of those movies. I kind of hope that he'll find his way out of this financial quagmire and have, you know, a bit of a, a second career, you know, like a like a John Travolta or a Mickey Rourke or something. He'll, I hope maybe, you know, a couple of years he'll, he'll sort of come back around and we'll get to see the cage of old. <laughs> if he hasn't already lost his goddamn mind. I, I, I want a serious too, man. I want face off. Oh too. my god. Cage versus me? no cage versus cage. Fa oh man. Whose whose face is he taking <laughs> his own. off? His own. His own. And it's just his face <laughs> underneath. Yes. 
Oh man, sign me up. I'm standing in line for that oh, right so now. <laughs> oh my God. That was great. All right. Yeah. Do you have any uh, other early thoughts before we dive into this or should I go right into the plot summary? Let's unleash the beast. All right. Welcome to the rock. I mean, nowhere, Arizona. Here we meet High McDonough, played by Nicolas Cage, a convenience store robber who seems to be a fan of the Bill Murray comedy Groundhog Day, as we are shown him continually getting arrested and released from jail from numerous robberies, always promising to reform. Well, actually, he promises not to reform, but that doesn't matter to the parole board in nowhere, Arizona, nor does it matter to Petty Officer Edwina, also referred to as Ed, played by Holly Hunter. You see, Ed's fiancé dumped her, probably because his name was Ed too, so when High realizes she's free, High expresses his true feelings to her in the South Passage. Ed promises to wait for High's eventual release from what must be Sideshow Bob's rotating door prison entrance. <laughs> when High does get released, they get married and move into their desert mobile home, and High surprisingly gets a real job at a machine shop. They want to start a family, but after trying for a bit, Ed realizes she cannot have children as she is infertile, and they cannot adopt a child because of High's dubious past as a criminal. Things seem to be doomed for the Starcross lovers. But wait, Apu Nahasapita, I, I mean a locally famous furniture store owner, Nathan Arizona, and his wife announced they have quintuplets. For those that need further explanation, that means five babies. So Hi, being an expert at stealing and obviously not getting caught, decides with Ed that they should kidnap one baby, because four will be enough for the real parents. After what seems to be a Maggie Simpson B storyline from a recent Simpsons episode, High eventually is able to kidnap a newborn, the one named Nathan Jr. High and Ed return home and seem to be out of the woods, but soon they are eventually visited by High's recently escaped prison cellmates, Gail and Evel Snotes. Ed wants them gone, but High is more generous, allowing them to stay for a longer visit, all the while the Snotes are trying to convince High to rob a bank. If that is not enough for High to deal with, he also has to deal with the fact that he punched out his immoral supervisor, Glenn, for suggesting they wipe swap to keep things interesting in Nowhere, Arizona. High seems to be frustrated, feeling the pressure of his life being in disarray, so while shopping for diapers, he habitually and spontaneously steals them, leading to a foot chase with the cops. High manages to elude them, but Ed is none too pleased. The next day, Glenn returns, black eye and all, still reeling, but now threatens High as he comes to the realization that their magical child's first name must either be Kellel or is in fact the missing Nathan Jr. Glenn gives High an ultimatum for High to turn himself in, or he will go to the cops, and he leaves. However, Gale and Evel overhear the conversation and turn on High, as there is a cash reward for someone finding Nathan Jr. The Snotes are able to tie High up, and they take Nathan Jr. However, before turning over Nathan Jr., they somehow fall in love with him on the car ride, so they decide to keep the boy for themselves, and their first act as self-imposed parents, they head towards a bank they intend to rob. Meanwhile, a leather-clad biker bounty hunter named Leonard Smalls approaches Nathan, Arizona, and tries to make a deal to find the baby for $50,000. Nathan actually believes his bounty hunter is the man responsible for kidnapping the baby, so the bounty hunter leaves with the intention of still finding the baby and selling him on the black market. High has actually been having nightmares about this bounty hunter and his dreams, so it looks like it's one, two, Leonard's coming for you. When we see Gale and Evel rob the bank, but they seem to have forgotten the baby on the road back to the at the bank for some reason. On the way back to the bank, the bank's anti-theft die canisters explode and they are incapacitated. High and Ed arrive at the bank, as High has assumed that is where the Snotes are headed. But instead of finding the Snotes, they see the bounty hunter there, and a small chase ensues. High and the bounty hunter eventually face off, and High is able to pull a pin on a grenade attached to the bounty hunter's vest, and the bounty hunter explodes. High and Ed decide they should not be together, 
They would not be good parents after all, so they return Nathan Jr. back at the Arizona's home. Nathan Sr. catches them as they are returning the baby, but he goes easy on them as he understands their predicament of not being able to conceive a baby themselves and does not call the police. He also provides some advice to the couple, telling them to sleep on it before actually splitting up. That night in his dreams, High dreams that Gail and Evel return to prison and reform, that Glenn gets his due for being an ass, that Nathan Jr. grows up to be a high school football player, and that High and Ed do remain together. The movie closes with High's dream of him and Ed being grandparents, and their many children and grandchildren come and visit them around the holidays, and all is well. The end. So Jeff... As per usual, give me your initial high-level thoughts here based off this uh, plot synopsis. Yeah, it certainly sounds sort of like a, a zany heist movie, you know, with some with some interesting character elements. There's a lot of plot here. Like when you when you listen to the synopsis, it sounds like there's a lot going on. Again, it doesn't says a lot of the movies we talk about on the show. There's a lot more under the surface here than than what we're going. But but I think if you were to you know to go through that as a comedy, uh, I'm interested. I think there's probably some potential for some laughs here. Yeah, I would agree. I would say if someone would read that to me just based off that, it would sound like it would sound like an 80s comedy, a typical yeah. 80s comedy. No, I don't think it's something I'd really see today unless it was on video for demand or something like that. Direct to DVD type of movie. But yeah, I think from the 80s, this is the type of comedy that would have been thrown out there for sure. Yeah. So how about I before we get into the nitty gritty details, I'll hit you with some trivia. So the movie was released in 1987 and this was the Coen Brothers second movie. They wanted to make a movie that was a complete 180 with respect to their previous movie, Blood Simple. They wanted something uh, more optimistic and upbeat this time. The budget for this movie was $5 million. Upon release, it was a modest hit, and it actually made $23 million, which, uh, again, back in 1987 was uh, fairly decent for uh, a low-budget movie such as this. The movie launched the careers of all the main players in the movie. Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, William Forsythe, and Frances McDormand. In fact, McDormand was a girlfriend of Joel Cohen, and they eventually got married, and she has appeared in other Cohen brother movies along the likes of Hunter and Goodman. Cage, in the same year as this one, also made Moonstruck with Cher, and that was a romantic comedy, and that cemented his status as a leading actor in Hollywood uh, back in the late 80s. The Bounty Hunter's name, uh, actor uh, who played the Bounty Hunter, his name's Randall Cobbs, I believe. Yeah, he is actually a former boxer, uh, you could tell from his face pretty much, and he used to, <laughs> used to compete in the heavyweight division, actually. If he looks familiar to you, it's because he's made some other small appearances in film. Um, you know, like I think he did a Police Academy movie, Ace Ventura, Naked Gun, and the Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar. These aren't definitely not the creme de la creme of the movies we are referencing here, but maybe you recognize him. He also did some small TV shows in the 80s and 90s, did like a couple episodes of X-Files, and but I don't think he's really been in anything since 2001, it seems to be. He's retired. Another interesting fact here is the cinematographer is Barry Sonnenfeld. He became a director, and you probably recognize him from his uh, Men in Black movies. The initial reviews for this film were very mixed, but since then it has become more of a cult black comedy, and recent retrospective reviews are giving it a lot more praise than what it initially got upon release. According to what I have read through my research, the relationship between Nicolas Cage and the Coen brothers was also not very pleasant. Cage wanted a bit more involvement in the dialogue and had some other ideas for the character and the story, but the Coen brothers didn't allow any deviation to their dialogue and vision. So from my research, that also seems to be kind of the case with the Coen brothers themselves, even to this day. It wasn't just because it was Nicolas Cage. It was, that's just them. In an interview, like an actor studio interview or something like that, Cage said the only thing he was able, able to provide creative input on was his hair, <laughs> which, <laughs> which de definitely is a character onto itself in this film. 
And finally, one last little neat piece of trivia is every single character in this movie eventually breaks into tears or cries a little. The only character that does not do that is the baby. So I found that quite interesting. So Jeff, uh, based on uh, some of that trivia... Any comments, anything that stood out for you, or do you want to head straight into the movie? Well, what I thought was interesting, and I'm, I am absolutely not surprised to hear this, is the lockdown that the Coen brothers have on their dialogue. So I am not surprised that, you know, they looked Nicolas Cage deep in his soulless, <laughs> soulless. bottomless black eyes, and, uh, you know, fuck right off with his uh, dialogue suggestions, because he's crazy. And that's the linchpin of every single film they make is the dialogue. So I could definitely see that. I'll tell you this. I, I wouldn't have the guts to stare down the cage. So good for those guys. They uh, <laughs> got some cojones. No, uh, cojones. No, no, they're stupid. You always listen to the cage. That's my motto. It would be a different movie. That's for sure. As I said, man, always. I have to listen to my spirit animal. So, you know. Well, my guess is that he probably had a lot of creative and dialogue input on Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, and we can see how that turned out. So Never saw it, but uh, it's on my list. How? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, let's do that in the future. Pause the podcast. Let's do Ghost Rider, <laughs> Spirit of Vengeance. A man peeing fire. You will never see it again. I don't know. I'd see it multiple times if that's the case. All right, so how about we get anything else we should be uh, get right into here? Oh, let's, let's roll, man. All right, so the opening act of the movie. So the first thing I kind of wanted to ask you and talk about is um, the one u- unique thing here is the entire opening sequence. It's quite long, and it's really a mix of high narrating his rotating life in and out of prison, how he met Ed, them showing to get married and their desires for a family, and then the tragedy of Ed being uh, infertile. Then this narration continues as they realize that Nathan Arizona has the quintuplets and I believe they're labeled the Arizona quints. And then they go off on their decision to kidnap one of the babies to raise as their own child. Then as they're leaving and riding off into the sunset, I believe with that ladder on their car, intending to kidnap the, the kid, then, you know, the raising Arizona opening credits, the title t- uh, title card comes there and you get the, the initial score there and, uh, the yodeling, which is the main kind of theme, and we could talk about that later. But what did you think about this whole introduction and the narration with High here? Did you like it? What What are your thoughts here? Yeah, this was one of my favorite parts of the whole movie, in fact, was the opening. I think it's 12 or 13 minutes before the title card even comes up. You know, as you said, sort of the Groundhog Day quality of this revolving door you know, convict here. I mean, he just does not have any other way to live his life, and yet he's so... I don't know what the right term is. Docile. I mean, his guns aren't loaded, which he, you know, which we find out he doesn't want to hurt anybody. And yet, like this life of crime is all that he's good for. And what I thought was a really neat point there, and it doesn't really have too much bearing on the overall story or the plot, but I thought it was an interesting commentary on the American justice system is, you know, every time he's sitting before the parole board and he's just telling them what they want to hear. And it's like kind of like they know it and he knows it, but they let him out anyway. Right. So, you know, this question on the uh, justice system, the prison system, you know, is this incarceration for revenge or is it incarceration for rehabilitation? You know, like they 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 just don't get it. Like the parole board, they sit there. They don't they don't get it at all. They just they keep letting the guy out. You know, they they hear what they want to hear. Yeah. It's Colonel Sanders who's on the parole board there. And he goes, you know, okay then. Like, you know, you know, you'll be arrested if you come, if you do this again, he goes, I understand. Okay, then you're good to go. 
Yeah, I think it's a commentary. I don't know if it's a commentary on the American legal system partially, but it might also be commentary. I know Arizona is not really, is it classified as a Midwestern state, even though it's not really mid, I guess. Southwestern. Southwestern. So I don't know, those mid states, maybe it's a commentary of the kind of people there, or maybe they rely on, on, on these prizoners for jobs. Like, you know, it's, Mm. you you know, to, as part of their economy, you know, you got a police, you know, law enforcement, judges, lawyers, parole board people here, security guards, all these kind of things they were, they rely on. There's nothing else in, in these states that produce a lot of stuff for the economy unless, you know, certain places, you know, have wheat and corn and shit like that. But I mean, some of these places in the middle of the desert, what do they fucking produce? Dick all. So yeah. what, what's their economy? That's the way I was kind of looking at it. It's kind of like they're poking fun that they have to let these people go and commit more crimes so they can have people maintain jobs mm-hmm. in the way of life. That's just the way of life for them. So yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting perspective. I never I never thought of that, but uh, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah, there's nothing else. They're in the desert, uh, and like many Coen Brothers movies, uh, you know, takes place in uh, sort of the, you know middle of nowhere, some backwater place, and uh, yeah, that's all that going on the, there. Is, you got the blue meth, or you know Heisenberg blue, yeah. or we're going to be doing this. So what's your blue meth? Put the cage on some uh, blue meth and get yourself a bag of popcorn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be something else. I do want to mention the voiceover provided by Nicolas Cage, uh, which, again, is another, uh, you know, Coen Brothers technique that's used in many of their films there. You know, his accent's a little weird at first, but it really starts to grow on me. I think he does a great, really good job with this voiceover. Voiceovers are really, really tough to pull off. And I don't think people really realize how tough they are. I mean, they, the actor doesn't have any other opportunity to emote, right? It's just the voice. So he's got to make sure he's telling the story, you know, just through the voice. Obviously, the dialogue has to be top notch, which I'd say it is. But I thought you did a really good job uh, with this here. You really got a sense of his character and just how it's almost a helplessness to me. Like he has he's caught in this cycle, as we've talked about I think he really captured the hopelessness of this uh, cycle that, you know, eventually they do try to break. But uh, yeah, I think that was a great introduction to the character. Yeah. And like, again, maybe it's like um, he's a product of his surroundings, right? Because there's nothing else mm-hmm. there. Maybe that's a point of American society. And we'll get to that at the end there, the product of his surroundings, because uh, I think the, the end kind of maybe indicating that that's what the Coen brothers are going for, just in a theory of mine. I'll just give you some other thoughts here. I mean, well, the first note that I actually wrote down was the bird's nest on the top of Nicolas Cage's head, a high's head. I, I love it. I love that hair. It's a character all on its own. Unfortunately, I guess birds have plucked it all out of his head after this movie's been done, but and he's replaced it with a dead beaver, but that's another story. Uh, and I love the nickname highs. We've talked about, you want to see Nick Cage on drugs? Well, I mean... Nick Cage is high. So I know it's HI, but <laughs> I, I thought it was always a, a little appropriate. <laughs> and one thing I wanted to ask you is what did you think of this scene as part of the narration when he declares his love for her just spontaneously? And they actually get engaged during his latest fingerprinting session. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought it was charming and unique. I mean, if real life couples can get engaged during sporting events in front of other spectators and strangers, why not someone while well, they're getting fingerprinted? But did that humor work for you or did it not? Well, it, it kind of goes, uh, it, it fits into the Coen brothers' normal sense of humor, which isn't necessarily laugh out loud funny. You know, the, the comedy there is still effective in, in, in the sense that it's an absurd situation. You know, we're seeing, you know, like this joining together of these opposites, right? You have the, the, the crook and the cop, you know, they're on literally on opposite sides of the, you know, of this fingerprinting table. It was appropriate, you know, story wise for them to do it this way. I didn't laugh. 
but it helps create the world that we're going to be living in for the next 90 minutes too. It's not our world that we're living in. We're living in this weird place. Yeah. It's unique and charming. And and I, I agree with you. I think this whole opening sequence that lasts about 15 minutes long is probably one of the stronger points of the movie for me. I really enjoyed and I was really along for the ride in this first 15, 20 minutes here. We've already talked about the unique and quirky dialogue. I think the dialogue is fairly strong through the whole movie here. I wanted to point out one thing. He says when Ed's infertile uh, and they're at the doctor's office, he says, I wrote this down, her insides are a rocky place where his seed can find no purchase. (laughs) So, you know, uh, it's funny because I think I read the Coen brothers were kind of influenced by a lot of Southern literature, William Faulkner tales, and even the Bible. I think they took a lot of that kind of reserved hippie redneck type of dialogue and, 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 you know, converted it or yeah. per- perverted it into into this movie and it's quite unique and and I do enjoy some of the lines in this movie and I think one of the reasons why this movie has generated a cult following is because of some of the unique lines in this movie that's from what I gather reading on the internet a lot of people like this movie because of the quotes you can take away from it mm-hmm. so just thought I'd get that out I also Wrote down, you know, when the um, first thought I'd said is when they uh, on the TV, when the Arizonas had the quintuplets and they named them the Arizona Quints. First thing that popped in my mind was a redneck version, even more redneck version of Quint from Jaws. It's like, (laughs) the starboard, ain't you watching it? Okay, then. (laughs) So so I, I just wrote that down. I thought that was quite interesting. And then. The last bit here is as opening sequence rounds out is um, I wanted to talk about the score. You get when the title card comes out and you get the yodeling and the banjo. What are your impressions of the score here? Did you enjoy it? Is it appropriate? I thought it was both appropriate and yes, I did enjoy it. It certainly fits with, with the movie. I mean, it, it evokes everything about the movie and it's kind of a highbrow redneck type of music, which is the same as, which is what I wrote down for the dialogue. Everybody sort of speaks sophisticated redneck uh, in this, <laughs> in this area, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought, that, I thought it was good, man. I thought it was a really good, a really good score. It, it totally fits. It does. It, it's also fun and quirky. But yeah, I couldn't listen to this over and over again, but it fits in this movie. But the question I have is when you use this kind of music in this choice of music, is it not a stereotype onto itself? Is the score prejudiced? (laughs) That's interesting, man, because (laughs) I guess the answer is both yes and no. I mean, they are playing with stereotypes here. So is it stereo? I mean, what are they going to are they going to play Mozart? You know, like, is that going to fit? Um, is John Williams doing the score for this movie? I, I don't, I don't think so. You know, like they gotta, they have to still put the movie in its geographical place and, and in time as well. And that, and this is how you do it, mm-hmm. you know? So is it, is it stereotypical? Is it, is it racist in itself? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. No, I just thought I'd bring it up to see. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I think they're definitely playing the stereotype card here. But you mean, I don't know if if they're playing to rednecks, rednecks, if they're that's part of the target audience. Are they making fun of rednecks or is that the target audience? They're, I'd say they're making fun of rednecks. It's then it's, uh, then it's the target. That, then it's, target then, they then wouldn't it's, get it, right? They yeah, exactly. So then it. it's prejudiced. That's my definition. If I just see you just throw a brown guy into a North American movie from Hollywood and all of a sudden his theme is just Indian music. <laughs> is that not race, racist and prejudiced? It depends on the context. I would depends say. on the context. Yeah, I agree. But what happens, you know, if this guy wants nothing to do with it, just a regular Joe a banker dressed in a, you know, Armani suit and Gucci shoes. And they, they show him strutting down, you know, Wall Street and playing his theme is Indian music. Is that not prejudiced? I would well, assume would be, so. 
Well, that would be prejudice, but so again, that, that, but that, that comes down to the context, comes right? Comes down to the context. But so here, if the rednecks are not the target audience, I would say it's prejudiced, but they're making fun of it. So then, but that's okay. That's the satirical joke here. Yeah, I guess that's, that's right. So that's the joke. Oh man, I don't know. Can you make fun of, can you make, <laughs> can you make fun of an ethnic group or, uh, I mean, you could call, can't call rednecks an ethnic group because it's term no. itself. Well, that's why I'm not saying racist. I'm saying but. prejudiced. Well, I guess you'd have to say the whole movie's prejudiced then, wouldn't you? Maybe. It's quite possible. But again, they're the Coens, they all they often take idiots as the protagonists of their films. And they, to play to comedic effect. And 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 part of what's interesting when they do that is they kind of show you the it's like a magic trick, right? They show you the one thing. They're like, look over here, and then you know, you get the redneck music and the redneck dialogue and all that stuff. And you're you're looking there, but really all the magic's happening underneath there where this is actually very heartfelt and intelligent type of movie. So hard to say that it was that it's prejudice. They're, they're kind of using that to play to the audience's built-in prejudice in order to, you know, sucker punch them with the magic that's coming underneath. Right. You know what I mean? I understand. I understand. Well, so we'll see how that plays out. So how about we just, we move on. We both agree. The score is unique and charming. Mm -hmm. So now um, the next scene here is we get to the baby stealing scene where High is using that ladder to get into the second floor of the Arizona household to steal the baby. And here we get a very long scene of him trying to steal one baby. It all goes wrong for him. Cohen's here trying to create a humorous scene here and probably show that High himself is not experienced dealing with children and has a lack of intelligence about him as well my question to you is is does any of this work for you uh no well yes some of it works but i'm enjoying the character work at this point here i mean they're they've got this half-baked idea to go off half-cocked and kidnap this kid they're just acting out of instinct out of emotion they haven't thought this through. They wouldn't even know how to think this thing through. No. Um, you know, like their scheme to to rip off a kid is get a ladder, climb in the window and grab him. I don't know. I mean, maybe that kind of goes back to what we were talking about. I mean, there's a couple of idiots, really. And, uh, you know, they're responding to their intense desire to have a kid. So I think it's working as uh, as, as character development from a plot perspective, it's a bit of a stretch even in this strange world of this fictional Arizona. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I feel that the scene drags out way too long. Humor falls mm. uh, a bit flat here. I mean, I do enjoy Nicolas Cage in, in this scene in a couple of moments. I mean, I love how he kind of pushes. He's already dealing with a baby. He's already crawling around everywhere on the floor. Again, another one gets up. I think he pushes another baby down kind of rough. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. And I think Cage pulled it off. So did the baby. And again, shows Cage's lack of intelligence and, and experience here. But yeah, you can't seem to get a handle on all of it. And eventually several of them get loose. And I didn't really like much of yeah. what I saw here. It's just it's it just becomes something I think that they're just going for again because they, they said that their previous movie was so dark. I mean, I don't know anything about Blood Simple, but they're saying they wanted to make something more fun and quirky and optimistic and a comedy here. I think they just threw this in and forced the comedy here, but it really didn't work too much for me. The one thing I did like, though, is all the baby names in that one massive crib. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed what the wife was reading. Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I chuckled at that. I have no idea if they're throwing that in there as a reference to Star Trek or not, but... Uh, no, that's a real, that's a real book. Dr. Spock? Yeah, that's a, that's a real person. Who the fuck is Dr. Spock? I don't know. Uh, uh, psycho like a psychologist. I believe this Dr. Spock person uh, put it into the Google machine, man. And, and uh, I, I can't and do it. See. I'm recording. You got to do it for me. 
Yeah, that's not a Star Trek reference at all. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> all right. He's uh, yeah. He was a, a pediatrician. Doctor Spock. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, he published. Uh, he published. Light. He's very famous. Yeah. Obviously not famous enough because you haven't heard of him. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, he fails on all levels what? because it didn't reach. Yeah, you. fail. <laughs> Yeah, you're the second guy to be called Spock in the public consciousness. So he, he doesn't Sorry, buddy. There's only one. You lose. <laughs> he loses. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So then they nab the baby. They escape uh, or leave to go home. And I believe our next scene here is we're cutting away to the prison. The Snote brothers, Gail and Evel, are escaping and they're, you know, they're peering out of their tunnel of mud in the outside of the fences in the yard scene. And it's raining and it's dark and stormy. And Galen Evel here, played by John Goodman and William Forsythe. Did you get a feel or a vibe that this was... I haven't seen Shawshank in so long, but was this similar to Shawshank, but just a lot louder? Mainly thanks to John Goodman? Yeah, I was going to say, like, this This was like the yeah the prison break scene in Shawshank, just like on acid and (laughs) amphetamines and shit. Like, John Goodman tearing out of the ground there. I I love John Goodman, man. He's a force... Looks, you're looking so young here. Um, Is he? Yeah, I thought he's a husky creature already here. He probably well, ate no, he's, several creatures before this. Scene, he's a big fit. Yeah, because he definitely had breakfast, second breakfast, and lunch on his way out of this hole here. He's a big boy. I think there were actually there were four inmates on their way, but only <laughs> he, only he and uh, Evel made it out. I, I really I like this. You know, like coming out of the ground like that was uh, very cool imagery and. I, I mean, I'm watching this. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I see it's John Goodman. I'm like, okay, I, I buy it. It's John Goodman. And he's, he's like Scotty from Star Trek. He seems to get bigger every time you see him on screen. In different- well, he does get bigger every time you see him on screen. Yeah, it's uh, like, I can't reach the controls, Captain. <laughs> he, he's, he's one of those specimens that make you marvel at the survivability of the human body. Yeah, like he's got good genes, man. He's that big and he hasn't, you know, yeah, succumbed to about, what, five billion heart attacks by now? Yeah. yeah. Like a guy that big has all of the diabetes. <laughs> it's like Mr. Burns, you know, it's like he has so many diseases that they can't get out the door. And attack yeah. him. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that scene. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> Not um, to make fun of John Goodman. I mean, the man is a very, very good actor and has a very, had a very uh, successful career. And uh, he's had some very good roles. He's had a successful oh, career. Give me this. Uh, he is Okay. He's not a bad actor. He just plays the same thing over and over again. No, 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 no. That isn't the case at all, man. He's got more range in his admittedly huge little finger than Morgan Freeman's got in his whole body. You're like comparing a rock to a rock with moss on it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. We're going to have to do a detailed examination of John Goodman's career one of these days because I dispute you, sir. I haven't seen enough of what I've seen of John Goodman is he plays the same fucking thing every time. And a lot of actors do. So that's what I mean. There's only he's not a rare antiquity actor. Let's put it that way. That's all I'll say. But let's move on. Let's not get into. Gotta have the last word. Son of a bitch. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm driving this thing. So next time you can do it. William Forsythe. Let's talk about him. He is not a famous actor. Like, you know, John Goodman's fairly famous. Especially in comparison to William Forsythe. William Forsythe's more of a dirty character actor. This is, again, one of his earlier roles. What I found interesting is he doesn't act like anything that I've seen William Forsythe do mm-hmm. since then. Yeah. He, he was very subdued, 
completely different. Yeah, you know, they had the accent. He was talking and acting a lot differently. Is this a sign of good acting from William Forsythe? I think you'd have to say so. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really even recognize him when I watched it until I kind of looked it up and I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy, I've seen him in everything. And he's very prolific actor. We're still working today. And, you know, he's been in everything. But as you say, he's a you know, prolific character actor. But but yeah, I think he shows uh, he shows some talent here because this is not what you're used to seeing from him. And he does a good job. I think so. Yeah, I think I think he does an OK job here, too. So, OK, so let's move on to the next scene here. Snotes, the, the brothers, they visit High and Evel. So we cut back to High and Ed's house. And this is the first night at home as a new family with their abducted child. And you get High showing Nathan Jr. all the luxuries of his mobile home. Well, there's a floor over there. There's a ceiling up here or whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and then their first night is interrupted as Gail and Neville pay high a visit and want to stay. So, Jeff, uh, anything of value in these scenes? Do you like anything here? Well, we're starting to get a little bit more with Holly Hunter's character, Ed. Yeah, I think this is kind of a cool scene. There's not a whole lot to take away here other than, you know, we see High's prison roots and that's creating a bit of a divide, uh, you know, even though Ed's no longer a police officer. Uh, you know, clearly this is this is causing a little bit of strife. But... You know, we're just kind of moving the plot. This is a plot set up for later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's not much here. I found it cute and charming that High was, you know, they're so desperate for kids. And, you know, I'm I'm a fairly recent new parent. I mean, my kids are two. So two years is a long time, but it just feels like they were born yesterday. So I can recall what it's like. It's a special feeling no matter who you are and what status of living you have. You're always proud to bring the kids home and happy to show them around. So I, I found this scene, you know, relatable and cute and charming um, and still funny. And then again, yeah, this is mainly um, uh, exposition and plot uh, device because these guys are going to be foils for them a bit later. So that's why they're there. That's their presence and value to the movie. I also think it's, again, a sign of maybe the Coen brothers saying he cannot escape his surrounding. You know, he's mm -hmm. a product of that society. So I, I found it interesting that and who high is, he cannot kick them out. He let them yeah. stay. So yeah. I found that interesting. So let's move to High's dream that night. So uh, that night we get our first glimpse about the apocalyptic biker from hell. It seems to be a cross between Mad Max's hairier cousin and Gibson's Braveheart character. I forget what it was. <laughs> what was the name of the Braveheart character? William Wallace. Uh, William baby. Wallace, right. So what are your thoughts about High's dream about the biker and what does it signify to you? Is there anything of significance here? I'm you know, not knowing anything about it because I hadn't seen it before. Uh, way out of left field. I'm like, what is going on here? You know, the, the apocalypse, I had the same thought, like it's, it's Ghost Rider and Mad Max at the <laughs> same time, you know, yeah. a very cool imagery. I'm like, what is going on here? This uh, sort of supernatural element, or at least it feels that way sort of at, uh, at first. Uh, but this is again, uh, something that, you know, the Coens and use in some of their films later is uh, almost a, a supernatural element here. But you know what? It perked me right up because it was out of left field. I'm like, okay, Something else is going on here that really grabbed me. I love the imagery. You know, what does it symbolize? I mean, I don't know. I've been kind of wrestling with that. I mean, part of it, obviously, because he's, he's seeing it in his dream. So is he having a premonition of some kind? Or is this, you know, the signal to him that he can't keep going in the same circle that he's been going in his whole life? Mind you, he's already kind of broken that circle by getting married and then concocting the scheme to steal a kid. But I guess then, even then, you know, it's still it goes... Yeah, it's still it's, yeah, going right back into the circle just with different players. And this is the sign that world that world is coming to an end. So that's the apocalypse for him. 
mm-hmm. right now is this imagery. I don't know if that plays itself out properly over the rest of the movie. We can talk about it as it as it comes along, but that's kind of how I was reading it. Yeah, the notes I wrote down here when I first saw it. I mean, I do like some of the imagery here for sure. I thought it signified his you know, initial thoughts was signifying his subconscious guilt from his current crime of kidnapping the child and maybe all of his other crimes, you know, his karma, the devil coming for him, you know, he's going to get his comeuppance. So I I thought maybe that might've been a sign there. It's also interesting as I think you've mentioned the the word premonition, found it interesting that maybe his dreams are coming true. You can touch on that later, any significance or not, because correct me if I'm wrong, does he not even dream here about Mrs. Arizona, the real mom, finding that the baby is gone and then you see her screaming in this dream sequence? I can't uh, recall. There's a dreamlike shot, which is which I read a little bit about this shot, which is kind of like pieced together where she's screaming like you see, the camera comes up the ladder and into the room and she's screaming. And that kind I think of that's the sequence. Yeah. Is that part of his dream or is that real? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's both. Because maybe he is actually having a premonition because obviously this horseman of the apocalypse does come true. So maybe, yeah, so we can talk about that later. Uh, Maybe he's having premonitions about his future and things that are coming true. So let's move on. Then we cut to the next day in Nathan, Arizona. And, you know, obviously because the wife realized that the baby was gone in that dream sequence. So in reality, that happens. So the next day we cut to the press conference with the real father, Nathan, Arizona. The actor, who I just wanted to point out, the actor who plays Nathan, Arizona, I actually liked this guy a lot. He was pretty good in this role. I believe the actor's name is Trey Wilson, and he was supposed to be in the next Coen Brothers movie, which I believe was Miller's Crossing. But he died shortly before that of a brain hemorrhage, unfortunately. And it's too bad because I, I really like the actor here. I was saying, why haven't I seen this guy in other things? He seemed pretty good in this role. And what did you think about this character? Yeah, I actually, I agree. I really liked him as well. I thought he was very good. I love the way he was saying some things. It was so 80s, like, do it my way or watch your butt. You know, it was yeah. like something yeah. out of Top Gun. It's like, I want some butts. You know, he, he had this sort of big fish in a small pond attitude about him yeah. like dennis franz and die hard to die harder i love it's, how you said die harder but of course well, that's, you have to throw it in there that's the full that's the title of the movie I, die I, hard i'm not two, bashing die harder. you i'm not bashing you but i just love how you have to point it out die harder but it's okay let's move yeah. on <laughs> no but he was he was very good i mean it's taking you know the tropes that the stereotypes that that we come to know i mean you got the small town you sort of have this big southern businessman who runs all this shit, and he's what an unpainted furniture store is all he's is his claim to fame, and yet that that's the big deal in this town is the unpainted furniture store magnate, and I, I found that humorous. And Trey Wilson did a really good job of you know he's got a bit of bluster to him, but he's he's an idiot. Yeah, you know he's just as much an idiot as High. Yeah. Only he's he's got the money. Well, I don't. I would. The organization. I, would, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying he he's as big as idiot as high. Yeah, he is a businessman. You know, it doesn't even matter here. His baby's still gone, and he's still all about the ad, you know plugging in an advertising spot for yeah. in front of the news, right? Yeah. So uh, I I think, and then the fact he became famous, he looks like he was you know um, he did all that hard work himself. I wouldn't go as far as saying he's an idiot, but again, he's a product of that dim-witted mid-state society. Again, is that a commentary about American society? Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. But yeah, I did enjoy these scenes here. At least this press conference here, it was pretty funny. So then we cut to the next scene here. Hi and Ed with their new baby invite the high supervisor, Glenn, and Glenn's wife and kids over. The wife's name is Dot in the movie, and Dot's played by Francis McDormand. So they get together at their place at the mobile home. Uh, mobile home and here we see High starting to admit to Glenn being a bit overwhelmed and frustrated. 
So we, we see even have Dot starting to overwhelm Ed with all the responsibilities of parenthood. Kid has to have this, has to have that vaccine and such and such. So you can definitely understand why High and Ed seem to be a bit overwhelmed. Naturally, all parents would be in the same spot when there are new parents. And, and then you have, but then you, you cut away to a weird thing. Uh, it is kind of straight out of left field is like Glenn's suggestion of doing a wife swap. Yeah, <laughs> because him and daughter are swingers. So yeah. that's just to keep thing in, things interesting because there ain't much else to do in these parts, I believe he says. So and then Hyde decks him. So, so what did you think of these scenes here? Any thoughts? Did any of this work for you? Where does it fit in this movie? Like what's going on here? Well, I, I laughed. Uh, this is one of the few points in the movie where I laughed out loud because, again, it's they're a product of this environment and these people are who they are. But they're not swingers because they're sexually liberated or anything like that. They're just they're fucking bored, you know. Mm-hmm. And I found the humor there. And, and he, you know, he's so appalled at this that he, you know, he punches his lights out. And also they're like they're so unappealing. Like these are the swingers and they're just a couple of like sort of homely looking desert dwellers. And, and there's just nothing like cool or sexy about it at all. It's like, oh, gross. So I, I thought it was I thought it was funny and it helped. You know, again, it helps kind of like build this world around him where it's just there's just nothing going on. And it's sort of an oddball way of reinforcing the setting and throwing a joke and a couple of quirky characters at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, these scenes really, uh, I kind of feel a little bit differently than you do. I don't really get much from these scenes. I feel it's just filler. I guess the one thing that's demonstrated here is I mentioned that High and Ed are overwhelmed and unprepared. But I'm not sure if this is just a simple plot device for them to reconsider having the kid later, or is it something else? I, I'm not sure. These these scenes here kind of slowed down the film for me a bit too much. It wasn't really that funny or interesting. I mean, I get where, where you kind of laugh at the fact that they're swingers because they're bored, but I don't think that's enough for me to justify these scenes. Uh, I don't like Glenn as a character. I mean, you're not meant to like him, but I just find that him and Dot and his later involvement in the in the film, which we'll get to, wasn't really needed in my opinion. But let's move on. I believe that evening they need to go high and Ed are still a bit overwhelmed and Ed tells High to stop at a convenience store to pick up some diapers. All of a sudden, High makes a decision to pull some pantyhose over his head and steal <laughs> steal the diapers instead of paying for it. And then the acne-cladded cashier then triggers a silent alarm and Ed sees what's happening from the outside and gets furious and drives away without High. Uh, and then we get a foot chase between High and the police and you get the score perking up again with the yodeling and the banjos and the police are shooting at him and he manages somehow to keep going without getting shot, ducking in and out of the houses and the neighborhood. We even get a strange dog stampede somehow. You know, it's kind of like yeah. Rocky two, only with dogs <laughs> instead of children. So they just join in for the fun. So, so what did you make of this whole thing here, Jeff? Did you, did you like these scenes here? Yeah, actually for the most part I did. I mean, I did think it was funny that he can't even buy the diapers. He has to steal them. Like that was the impression. Like he walked in there. There was no question in his mind that he was going to steal these diapers and the money in the till because. But why? So that's my question. Why? Because that's because that's who he is. That's what he does. It, it's okay, the same as my it's the same as me, like buying gas at the gas station is just do it. OK, but I'm and that's how we okay, put that's on, how we played it. But I have to make the logical assumption that when he got married to Ed, there was a period of time while they were trying to get pregnant. He had a legitimate job at a machine shop. He was getting a paycheck. Things were hunky dory. And they, they were paying for everything normally. He was living a, you know, a clean life. So why here all of a sudden does he s- decide to spontaneously steal these diapers? He wasn't stealing them before. I've got to make that assumption. That's the logical conclusion that one would or interpretation that one would have here previously. 
since he got engaged and married. He was clean well, until this point. It, so why it, did it he could, do it here? I guess there's two there's two possibilities here. Either one, he has been stealing, we just haven't seen it. I don't buy or that. two, he's overwhelmed. Like everything's just blowing him away. The kid, Ed's kind of going over the top on him. He's got the his buddy's busted out of prison. They just beat this guy up for suggesting a wife swap, and he's like you know, fuck this. I'm going back to my roots here. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going with what I know. Yeah. And that's you know, the, so that would be the other explanation. And that, that's where, uh, I um, and, and that's, that's probably the right explanation, but I love how he plays it. Like he's, he's nonchalant about this. He's just, oh, yeah. he's, he's going to steal the diapers, but that's the brilliance of cage, the cage, I should say. The cage. The cage. Yeah, it's not there, cage. It's the, the cage. cage. Yeah. Nicholas T. Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas the cage. <laughs> It's like William T. Riker, the Riker. <laughs> yeah, the Riker. No, no. I joked now, around. There's a I, don't know, I don't know if I recall telling you this. I joked around with my wife. I said, when we have kids, they should be named the. Because then they can call themselves anything they want. <laughs> the Flash. The Cage. <laughs> you know? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, she, she vetoed it right away. But I I think it works. It, you have <laughs> girls, though. I don't know that it quite works. <laughs> I'll ask them when they're 18. There's too much trouble there, I think. Uh, I think you're asking for too much trouble there. Um, I can't imagine how your wife shot that down there. Did you Did you put the cage in front of her when you made the suggestion? I should have. I should have. I should have always, gestured to a no, photo of him. I should a photo have, that I know you have. I should him. always have a, a cardboard standout of Nicolas Cage at the entrance well, of I just, my house. I figured, I figured you had one next to your bed. No, but, you know, giving me ideas here. So... <laughs> There's a rude awakening in the middle of the night going to get a glass of water. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so anyways, um, any, anything else you want to say here? Uh, I'll, I'll, well, I, I do think it, I mean, it was the, the, pan, the, the, the pantyhose is, it's funny. Like he, he makes it uh, funny as well. Again, going back to cage, uh, equal parts, you know, hilarity, like unaware humor where, you know, he, he doesn't think it's funny. The characters think it's funny, but it's obviously played for laughs. The nonchalantness of the, of the robbery here and the chase scene for some reason evoked the, uh, the epic, uh, chase scene in, uh, in true detective season one, where they're just going through all the households and stuff. Oh, I uh, thought you were going to say the rock. <laughs> we really got to put the rock. We got to do the rock on this, on this show. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I, I laughed. I thought it was funny. Uh, the cops are played for dupes as well. And I, I kind of like how it finishes where it's like, okay, it, they, um, he's just giving her directions after that. Like yeah, just left up here and they're like yelling, screaming at each other. Yeah. Okay. Take her right up here. And then, you know, leans out, grabs the diapers, uh, like a boss. Um, I thought this was, um, I thought it was funny, funny action scene here. You know, it doesn't do a whole lot to move the plot along, but uh, one of my favorite parts. Yeah, I mean, uh, I understand why they threw it in here. You needed something to perk the audience up a little bit and get the energy going because there's not a lot of high energy. But even though I wouldn't say this chase is a high energy chase, it was just something to perk the audience up. So I understand why they did it here. I I like Nicolas Cage himself in these scenes. Um, He does look somewhat at home with the pantyhose over his head, holding a package of Huggies (laughs) in one arm and a gun in the other. So I like that. I like that image. (laughs) He looks at home. He just looks at home. (laughs) It's like what Troutman says to Rambo. He went home. (laughs) 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 Or whatever. I do like, I just, so I wanted to make mention of some, some of the cinema, cinematography here, some of the camera work. I think there's some where the credit goes to Barry Sonnefeld, set of the Coens here with that 
point of view shot from the dogs is their that lower mm-hmm. point of view as they're chasing high through the houses. Um, but I, I found this the humor here. If they're they're trying to go for humor, it wasn't that great. We can make jokes about Nicolas Cage, and that that's where I kind of enjoyed it a bit more. It it was more the Cage himself. I mean, I guess there's the satirical comedy about the police just shooting at him, even though he just stole some diapers. So no, shoot first, no matter what the crime. Commentary on America's society and obsession with guns and violence and maybe the mid mid or southwestern states or mid states. I'm not sure if there is a commentary here or not. Is it also a commentary or joke about how family life can get you bogged down and just gets you into trouble? So I'm not sure here. Uh, the message is a bit unclear if there's a message at all, but I kind of mixed on these scenes myself. But uh, overall, again, as I mentioned, it's nice to have a bit more of an up up tempo scene. Um, so this is right here. Uh, and at the end of this uh, moment here, um, Ed mentions to high that they probably should break up because she, she's not going to have him committing crimes while she's raising a kid. So she, she wants none of this. So this is kind of, and then they go home as you mentioned, I think he was giving directions or something like that. Uh, and everything was just kind of silent and a little bit depressing at the end of this. But uh, this is kind of the end of Act 2. So, Jeff, what are your thoughts so far with this movie? Is it engaging you? Are you with the story? Are you with the characters here? What's working for you or not working for you at this point? Well, uh, I mean, the the highlight so far, uh, Nicolas Cage is uh, carrying this on his back. He is delivering the, the Coen's dialogue with a, a, lot of, a lot of style. He's he's got some balls here. He's he's selling he's selling the dialogue. I mean, the, the Coens can be uh, very intricate with with their dialogue, and it takes the the right people to to carry it. So I think he's doing a good job. Uh, Holly Hunter is not working for me at all. There isn't much character development with her. There's no chemistry, unfortunately, between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, in my opinion. So that's a, that's that's a big drag on the movie here because we're. You know, the whole premise is these two opposites have attracted each other, you know, across this chasm of law and order. And she just kind of turns into a bit of a stereotypical shrew. You know, she doesn't have any dimension. And that that bugged me. It's a little sexist. So that's bugging me. Uh, the supporting players are working for me. John Goodman is working for me. Uh, uh, Frances McDormand always works for me. I, I think that she's a fantastic actor. Our, our ghost writer, bounty hunter. Leonard Smalls is also, uh, you know, we've got some interesting imagery here. So I, I like to believe that you know, something else is cooking under the surface. But also for a comedy, for me, it's not funny enough. Yeah, I would I would kind of agree with you for the most part. I mean, the Nicolas Cage is definitely so far the highlight. Also, I, I like again, I like the dialogue, some of the dialogue here, the score, some of the imagery is really good here. But it's kind of a mixed bag so far because mm-hmm. I'm expecting it to be a bit more funny. And I agree. I think the chemistry between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, I think Holly Hunter is fine in the role. It's just the story and the, and the, the dialogue and the scenes. They're not, it's not focused on them enough, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I found surprising. And that's where I question some of the presence of these other characters. I'm wondering if it would have been a bit more of a tight movie and more effective if you kind of eliminated some of those other storylines, gave a little bit more screen time to just Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter themselves. I completely agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to the house here. So Huggy, five-finger discount, she suggests they shouldn't be together anymore. So they head back as to their mobile home and the Snow brothers still trying. And they actually managed to convince High to join them in robbing a bank, I believe, the next day or day after or something like that. 
So he believed here is where Hyre writes uh, a goodbye letter to Ed. But the next morning, before he can go anywhere, uh, his supervisor Glenn comes to visit and tells Hyre he knows the truth about the kid. He realizes it's Nathan Jr. and he threatens to go to the cops. But I do have a question for you here, Jeff. I was a bit confused at the scene and wondering if you can clarify something. Did Glenn want the kid for himself? And why? Was it to add to his family or did he want to have the reward from Nathan Sr. here? I was a bit confused. Uh, yeah, it was a little creepy, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought he wanted the kid for himself for some reason. It's almost like he had, like the baby has some kind of holy grail quality that all these, you know, all these people are after him. All these people want him for different reasons. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he wanted it for the money or not. He was a bit of a creeper, this dude. Yeah, I was a bit confused. And again, you know, I think that's where a bit this movie drops the ball here. Some of these side storylines here. But the one thing that this conversation does have here is when the Gail uh, and Evel here overhear this conversation with High and Glenn and realize that this is a kidnapped baby, uh, Nathan Jr. And they, when High returns, they tie him up, get into a fight and tie him up and steal the baby themselves so they can claim the reward for themselves. So the question I have here, Jeff, is we get a bit of a fight here between High and the brothers here. Do you find these scenes well filmed? What's your impression here? I didn't. I didn't take a, a lot of note on these scenes here. They worked okay, but um, yeah. I, I, again, like at this point in the third act, I mean, we're getting we're getting some more action, and I'm, it's just it's not. It just doesn't feel like it's that kind of a movie, or it hasn't been that kind of a movie to this point. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they're throwing this stuff in here. So it's yeah. I find the tone here a bit yeah, uneven. It's, it's a shift in tone. Yeah, so that's tone. yeah, that hurts. Yeah, it hurts. But uh, the one thing I did like about the sequence is uh, Nicholas Cage and his facial expressions as he's fighting and getting beaten <laughs> up, and his hair is on like different angles and staying up straight. And then, you know he goes to the one side yeah. and the hair goes somewhere else and goes the other side. The hair goes somewhere else. So it's like it's like an animal onto itself. Maybe it was an animal. I'm not sure. Well, it probably was an animal because you know how, how method Nick Cage. Ages. He's like, <laughs> we're putting a real beast on my head here. You know, it's it's also a little it's a little too slapstick. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, it's it's a bit too silly and slapstick here. And that doesn't really fit with that. That Slapstick is not in the Cohen's wheelhouse, I, I don't think. Yeah. So I'm wondering maybe if this is something of inexperience. It's their second yeah. movie and they wanted they I guess their first one was dark and they wanted to go something light and goofy here. So they did this and maybe their inexperience. Or maybe they took some lessons learned from this movie and then honed their filmmaking skills later. Yeah, and that's you know maybe that's something maybe we can talk about when we wrap up the the film. So let's move on. So uh, the next scene here is the uh, the brothers uh, have taken Nathan Jr. I guess they're on their way to claim the reward, but all of a sudden they f- strangely fall in love with Nathan Jr. Just because I guess <laughs> the baby smiled at one of them, and now they call him Gale Jr. And then I guess then I, I can't remember the exact steps, but then all of a sudden they realize he isn't in the car and they think they placed him on the roof. So yeah. they go back to maybe a rest stop or something and they almost run him over on the road. And all they're doing is screaming over and over and over again. It feels kind of like a Jim Carrey movie at this point. It's just all of a sudden there's all they're doing is just screaming. And yeah. it's, I even think this is repeated a second time again after the bank robbery. So I guess the question I have for you is I think you already answered this uh in a sense, is is this kind of humor common for the Coen brother films? Because I didn't find it funny here at all. I'm assuming it's not, based on what you've said. But any comment here? Yeah, it's definitely more slapstick than or over the top. So that I wouldn't say that is a Coen uh, characteristic. I like the bank robbery. I thought that was. I thought that was. Uh, well, we'll get into that. We'll funny. get into that. So let's let's leave the bank um, robbery out. I just wanted to know yeah. about the them leaving the kid over and over again. No, no, nah, eh. 
Yeah. I mean, we've all left shit on the roof of our cars, I guess. So I guess that's the joke, but yeah. So that's what? the joke. <laughs> <laughs> you suck, McBain. <laughs> I do suck, McBain. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> so, uh, meanwhile, while this is happening, um, that uh, bounty hunter we were talking about, Leonard Smalls, he visits uh, Nathan Arizona Sr. himself. And so we get a first real look at the big biker bounty hunter dude. And I, I, I like it funny on his way there. It's funny. He has an obsession for killing rabbits. I, I like some of this imagery here. Kind of rem- reminded me of the movie Rubber. Did you watch Rubber? Mm-mm. No. So no, I, no. I did watch that for one of those Halloween nights, just watching a silly, typical horror movie. You can call it a horror, horror movie. Just his tires is going around killing rabbits. Strange. It just <laughs> vibrates and the rabbits explodes. It's like this guy looks, this guy looks at the rabbit the wrong way and it explodes or something. So I found that kind of funny. But I like this, the scene between Nathan Sr. and this guy. I thought it was a strong scene. I like, and again, that's why I like the actors playing Nathan Sr., Trey Wilson. He's right on to this guy right away. And I like some of the cinematography here of the bike exhaust and the doom and gloom surrounding the bounty hunter. So maybe we can get into it a bit. I'll ask this question later. But did you did you like this scene overall between these two guys? Uh, I actually did. Yeah, I actually liked this scene. I thought it was good character interaction here. Both actors did a good did a good job. I guess the only thing that it's hard to say for sure, because the bounty hunter is brought down to earth a little bit because of this conversation. And I liked him more as the symbol that he's been so far and you know now he's just uh can can you elaborate on that like how did he change okay so our first introduction to this demon bounty hunter is in high's nightmare right Mm. so we get the apocalyptic vision of this this crazy and i said you know horseman of the apocalypse uh, motorcycle man (laughs) of the apocalypse uh, with the, you know, the crossed shotguns strapped to his back. And I mean, he's a herald of doom and destruction of bad shit coming down, which I loved. I love that imagery. And again, as I said, it, it kind of symbolizes the apocalypse of High's old world. But as it turns out, he's just a guy, you know, hard living, rough mofo for sure, who will mess up your shit by looking at you wrong and blow up some rabbits. But you know, he wants the, you know, whatever the reward, 25 grand. And, and that's pretty much it. Right. So I think that undercuts the strong imagery and symbolism of the nightmare. You know, he's just a guy who rides a motorcycle and looks really scary. Mm. As you said, maybe it would have been better if it was actually Ghost Rider himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a flaming mustache else. or some shit <laughs> would have been great. Yeah. Still played by Nicolas Cage. I'm not I'm talking about the biker. Cage, I'm talking about the mustache. Oh, the mustache played by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. So, so then after this, I guess Leonard Smalls kind of gets, uh, I forget how he gets a sense. He gets a, uh, a sense that maybe there's, there would be a bank robbery uh, involving high. So he kind of heads over there. And then we actually get to the bank robbery here with uh, Gail and uh, Evel. And do they, do they actually bring the baby inside with them? I believe they do, don't they? Yeah, I thought they did. Did they not? Yeah, yeah I think they, they did. Yeah. 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 Stand-up parents. Uh, uh, I love it here. So. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're bang-up guys. Yeah. They're so, naturals, really. So you said you enjoyed the bank robbery scene. So you care, care to tell us why? It felt like before, like they got this big plan to knock off this bank. And they basically walk in there like a couple of idiots and they can't even again. it's sort of the uh, the sophisticated redneck there. It's like everybody freeze, get down on the ground. And the one guy's like, OK, not you. Which do you want? 
Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was, you know, I thought that was kind of funny. I think, you know, they can't even pull off a simple bank robbery right, right from the start. It's a, it's, <laughs> they're idiots. And they go up to the, to get the cash and like all the bank tellers, where are all the bank tellers? Like, well, you told us to get on the ground. You know, they, yeah. they can't figure the fucking thing out. And then obviously the whole thing goes to shit because they got the, uh, uh, the die pack, which explodes in the car later. I thought it was funny. I mean, I, I like seeing John Goodman play a moron, I guess. He's really good at it. Yeah, he's not bad at it. I, I just feel that these these scenes are just... I, I just don't understand the purpose of why well, that, these yeah, characters you're right. and these scenes are here to begin with. So again, like, okay, is this just filler? It's. It, I think it's not so much... Yeah. Because yeah, I, I don't know, like, they don't really present a lot of a foil for... Too much of a foil for High. I mean, I guess they're just a reminder no. of his past and his yeah. temptation temptation to be still a criminal. His habitual yeah. temptation there. He's a product of his surroundings. So... Yeah, I'm not really a fan of the bank robbery here. I get that they're a bunch of morons and rednecks and don't know what's going on. So, yeah, they don't pay enough attention and the cashier throws in the anti-theft die and then explode as they leave and they forget the kid again. They start screaming and then the die explodes and they crash their car. And then they're pretty much written out of the movie at at that point. And then we get to the showdown between High Ed and the bounty hunter because High and Ed, High knows that they're probably heading to the bank. So they head there. The bounty hunter's there. And then you get this showdown. Let me know what your thoughts here about the the fight between High and the Bounty Hunter and that little chase. Well, I think we're getting kind of what's emblematic of the problems with the third act here is we're getting these weird action scenes with the bank robbery and the, you know, which again doesn't really have much purpose in advancing the plot. It's just, you know, it's played for some gags. We're losing the character driven events of earlier in the film. Now it's the plot driven events. I thought it was kind of cool how. Nicholas Cage uh, channeling his future roles as uh, that dude in the rock or Con Air. He just like takes the pen out of the grenades and pulls a Rambo blows three. that dude to smithereens. Yeah, pulls a Rambo three. Exactly. <laughs> I think Rambo pulled it off a bit better, but that's OK. Yeah. Well, you know, without Nicholas Cage going <laughs> with the messed up bass and stuff, it, it doesn't quite have the Sly Stallone quality that we'd come to know and love it. But it. <laughs> So the scene is, it doesn't, it's a, it's a letdown for me because shit's just happening and it's wrapping stuff up. Where's the revelation? You know, I wasn't meant to be a parent or wasn't meant to be a parent yet. Or, you know, the, my connection with this baby that I kidnapped or my connection with, you know, my wife, who's my polar opposite, or, you know, I'm doing battle with the thing that's come to destroy my life, you know, like my life, my my old world is ending and I'm doing battle with that. Where's the relevance of that? Where's the thrust of all that shit that's been building? It's just gone now. I absolutely agree with you. And I think maybe this bounty hunter, instead of going after the kid, he could have been maybe high, missed a parole meeting, parole board meeting or a meeting with his parole officer. So then they call in the bounty hunter to bring him in. For a meeting. And that's the battle. That's where that fight goes. It's not about the bounty hunters after the baby. It's yeah. again, just about his previous life. And they could have focused a bit more instead of this bank robbing scenes and the stuff with the Snotes brothers and all those things. It was just more Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter high and Ed. And maybe they could have had some interesting humor of them attempting to raise this child for, as their own. And they were struggling with it. It would have yeah. been a different type of comedy altogether and maybe less witty. I think maybe here the Coen brothers were trying to look at more witty dialogue. They're forcing that here a bit too much, but it didn't feel natural to the characters. And I don't think it serviced 
high-end Ed enough. Uh, with respect to this last fight scene, yeah, we talked about the Rambo 3 style grenade pin pull. A couple of low interesting shots, uh, point of view angles again from Barry Sonnefeld and with the chase between the motorcycle and the baby on the hood of the motorcycle there is kind of a little strange and a bit weird, but maybe that's part of this world, this weird world that the Coen brothers are trying to paint. But uh, the one thing I did notice here is that I think High was dragged from under a car and that was the same point of view angle uh, when the bounty hunter was dragging him out as when High was dragging the baby out under the crib at the beginning of the movie. So kind of mm-hmm. became full circle there. I, I made a note of that. Let's move on. So again, so then they return the baby to realize that, yeah, they're not well-suited parents. This isn't for them. Probably going to split up. So they take the baby Nathan Jr. back. Same way they break in the second floor window through the ladder. Then as they're saying goodbye to the baby when they put him back in the crib, Nathan Sr. catches them and then doesn't call the police. They explain that they just wanted to have a kid and they couldn't have a kid naturally and all that stuff or can't adopt. So he understood and then they were mentioning that they're going to break up and he tells them to sleep on it before breaking up. Is this good advice or commentary on the type of social behavior in nowhere, Arizona? What what was that here? And then you know, talk about High's dream ending and stuff like that. So what, what are your comments here? I didn't get the feeling that, I mean, why did they take the kid back? Was it because they realized what they did was wrong? Or is it because they could see that they weren't ready to be parents? I think Which both. was it? I don't, I, I, was I, it? but I didn't, I think it's both. I didn't get either. I didn't get either though. You know what I mean? But I think Neither the events. I think, but I think the events of the movie, especially with the bounty hunter chasing them and the kid be constantly being kidnapped out of their hands and other people chasing him, they can't escape that. It's not their kid. In addition, they realize they cannot be together. They're thinking of splitting up, so that's why they're returning it. There's two reasons here. They're not ready. Yeah. But then that's yeah. where that's why they said sleep on it. So then he has his dream sequence. So then, what yeah. do you think of that? Well, I mean, that kind of brings the. Uh, the dream sequence full circle. So the first dream sequence where we have the uh, the demon bounty hunter, where his old world is destroyed, and now we have we're coming around to what rises out of the ashes of his of the destruction of his old world, which is you know presumably the dream, uh, the, the the family that you know two three generations worth of family sitting around the Thanksgiving table, which is great. It's just so what, but you know for me at that point, I didn't feel like. They actually wanted that life badly enough for that dream sequence to have any relevance to me. I mean, certain, maybe there's a certain element of, you know, that's the future. That's when we are ready, it will happen for us, I, I suppose, is what he's seeing there. So, you know, not to be impulsive and, and just take it from now, but be patient and live and live life. I suppose you could interpret some of that in that dream sequence. So, you know, it's a kind of a heartwarming way to sort of wrap everything up and let you know everything's going to be okay. But yeah, I don't know. Kind of, it just didn't really work for me. Didn't work for you. Okay. No, uh, for me, I like the ending. It did work for me. Again, as you said, it's heartwarming uh, to see that. Yeah, as I mentioned, I think the Coens, as I, they were looking for something a bit more optimistic. So you mentioned that. We talked about his dreams, maybe having, he's having premonitions of something coming true. His subconscious mm-hmm. telling him something is coming. And then, as you said, have patience, work at it. That's why he said, sleep on it, be together, try and work on it a bit more. And then we talk about his final sentence in the movie when he wakes up from his dream and he says, hey, you know, maybe his current surroundings are not a good place for being good people or raising a family. And then he goes, maybe Utah. So I found that <laughs> I found that funny. That was a funny line. 
And I also think that, again, going back to his in and out of a revolving door prison life, he's a byproduct of that poor Midwest or Southwest, wherever, where, whatever you want to classify it. Nowhere, dumb little place, hick town, neighborhood. There's nothing there. There's nothing to do. He's a, he has no education, nothing else to offer. And he's just sucked into this life. And he's a byproduct of the society and the surroundings around him. So maybe then he says, maybe things will change if I move. So no. I found that kind of a funny, interesting way. And maybe, you know, maybe is that a lesson in life? Something's not working for you here. Don't give up. Pick yourself up. Go somewhere else. Try again. Try harder. Maybe is that the optimistic message that the Cohen brothers are trying to convey here? That's kind of how I'm interpreting it here. Cohen brothers are in my research here that apparently they're very, very hesitant and they do not like to give out any hints of what the commentary and the messages they're trying to convey in their movies. It's really up to the audiences here. Is there a message here? That's kind of what I got from it. I think that, you know, we've talked about it where all these people, like they are who they are and they're stuck in this cycle, you know, whether it's, I mean, the most obvious one obviously is high and the revolving door prison and it's going through the same thing. Same with Ed, you know, she's doing the same thing where she's processing these crooks who keep coming in and in and in and she's doing the same thing. Really, everybody's stuck in the same path. They're on rails and the rails run in a circle. But they are, you know, these people are who they are. They can't escape it. And that's the whole movie. And the optimistic ending is, you know, symbolically changing location. I mean, it's not so much about changing physical geographic location in the real world. It's more like changing the location of your your mindset, your psyche, your chi, whatever you want to call it, to get off of those rails and to, and to get to somewhere and having the patience to ride that new path. Because, you you know, the what you want is at the end of that, not in yeah. the old ways. So yeah. I think that's all there. Maybe this is a commentary about family life in America or the state of society in modern times. I mean, divorce rates are very high. It's very easy. And I find, you know, hard to say and hard to comment. It depends on the situation. But I would just put a simple guess out there that people maybe break up a bit too easy because it's a little simple to do. It's so easy to do mm -hmm. now. Instead of working mm -hmm. to resolve the problems the hard way, people take the easy way out, split up or get divorced. Maybe they're commenting about something like that here as well. I think you're absolutely right, man. I totally agree. And that's sort of epitomized by that, you know, where he says, you know, sleep on it before you decide to do anything. It's, you know, have the patience and, you know, work on it. Don't do anything rash. Cause that's all they did. The whole movie was they did something rash. Hmm. That's his whole life is just reacting. Hopefully learn to not just react, but to think, to contemplate and then act proactively. Right. That's part of when I said at the start, with a lot of Cohen brothers films is, you know, they're like the magicians, like look over here at all this you know, funny zany stuff that's going on. And then they come underneath with this, this kind of thing, whether it's the heartwarming message that we get here, the optimistic message, or, you know, some of the other shit that goes down in their other movies. That's one of the strengths of the film is it is, you know, it is trying to get you a little bit deeper. You know, there's more here than just some of the zaniness that kind of broke the third act for us. I think that is one of the things that does work for me is you can kind of feel that optimism, but I kind of wanted to, I don't know. Find another laugh. Well, yeah, I can understand. So then why don't we get into our final thoughts here, Jeff? So overall, what is your thoughts of Raising Arizona? Does it meet your standards of the other Coen brother movies that you enjoy? Where does this rank maybe in terms of the ones that you've seen? And how do you view this movie overall? Is it a recommendation for you? Is it a rare antiquity? What are its strengths and weaknesses? And be careful. The cage may be listening. The cage. 
cage may be listening. <laughs> we'll come to the cage uh, last, I think. If we take a look at this as a, a Coen Brothers film, is I think we can see some of the inexperience with you know new filmmakers here. This being their second film, it definitely has some of those you know lower budget, inexperienced filmmaker type of qualities to it. It feels a little bit thrown together, and from a plot perspective, it's not that tight. Their later movies, when it comes to plot, you know, a lot of their movies are very, very tight when it comes to plot and character. And this is a little loose, but it's kind of cool to see. I mean, does it fit the standards of my favorite Cohen films? No, not even close. But it is cool to see the seeds of some of those things that that they will do later in some of their uh, really excellent films. You know, we can talk about the performances a little bit. Uh, Nicolas Cage is, is fantastic. He's the highlight of the film here. What was really interesting, because I hadn't seen this before, you know, we, you kind of get this image of Nicolas Cage burned into your mind from the modern Cage. He's like a bag of cats. He's, you know, the, his eyes are all over the place and he's crazy. But he isn't really like that in this movie. No. He's straight calm in this movie. Fucking... Holly Hunter is the one who's batshit crazy in this movie. He's the one he's he's playing it cool pretty much the whole time. She's the one who's losing her shit. And I, I didn't enjoy her performance. I mean, she did fine. I think she's a good actor as well. But the character, I think, was underwritten. Just speaking broadly about all of the characters. And this is another thing that we see with some of the Coen Brothers stuff is their characters are often painted with broad strokes. You know, like each character kind of represents something they don't have. I don't want to say they don't have a lot of nuance, but they're almost, I don't know what the right term is. They're almost cartoon characters in a, in a good way. Like they have specific representations that they're you know trying to figure out. It's not like these aren't normal people in a normal world, right? They're uh, exaggerations. They're like funhouse mirror reflections, which is a good thing. I think that's a strength here. You know, overall, is, is this a recommendation for me? Are we talking about Rare Antiquities at this point? Or, we or split what? it. Is it just a recommend? Can modern audiences get into this? And then is it also a rare antiquity? Okay. Uh, I'm on the fence. Uh, I'm leaning towards no. I think there is a lot here to like. But for modern audiences, it's just not quite tight enough. It's a little rough around the edges. So, I, yeah, no. I, I think just taking it on its own, it might have to skip this one. Uh, I know it's very well reviewed and has... In the minds of most critics and viewers, it's aged like fine wine over time. I kind of take the opposite viewpoint, so so no. Um, and then, is this a rare antiquity? Has to be a no then, right? <laughs> it, it has to be a no, right? I mean, it wants to be. It's the type of movie that wants to be what, what we're looking for in a rare antiquity, but I don't think that it uh, – I don't think it quite gets there. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm so on the fence and actually – I'm liking the movie more as we've talked about it just here on the podcast. Mm. Uh, I'm mm. enjoying some of the layers that we've discussed. And my initial reaction watching it for the podcast is I'm saying, what is this? I mean, I like Nicolas Cage. I like some of the imagery. I like the dialogue. I like some of the bits of the score. But when we're talking about some of the layers and the messages underneath, especially at the end, I'm enjoying some of that a bit more as we've talked about it. And it's almost getting me to a point where I can recommend the movie. And I would. The only problem is the middle and the bulk of the third act. I find there's not enough there that is strong enough. Ethically, give it a recommendation. <laughs> you know, as much as I want to. We don't want to be committing any war crimes here, man. So, like, <laughs> let's just say ethically speaking. <laughs> yeah. But as you said, the cage is fantastic. This is what he is capable of doing. It's a quirky, 
honest, soulful performance by Nicolas Cage. Top notch. Yeah. It's one of the stronger performances in probably most of the podcasts we've done, in my opinion. Very good and very subdued, but it's strong. It's very good. I feel for High, especially after talking about it a lot more. This guy is just stuck in a rut. Can't get out. Yep. The other characters, not so much. I mean, I did enjoy William Forsyth a bit. I think John Goodman's just John Goodman. Okay, but nothing new here, even though it's one of his earlier roles. And again, as I mentioned, the character of um, Gale and Evel are just wasted and they kind of drag the movie down. All the scenes with them really don't bring anything to the table for me. And I think the movie would have served better of eliminating them completely. Maybe even Glenn and Dot too. Or they could have just had the one scene with them kind of pressuring them with all the responsibilities of, of being a parent, and that would have been it. And I think the movie should have focused more on High and Ed and their relationship and maybe their struggles with being yep. a parent. The relationship between High and Ed is not strong enough, unfortunately. And I think that's really where the movie fails. And I cannot yep. give it a recommendation based on that. But I love the beginning. I love the ending. I love some of the dialogue. I love bits of the score. Very appropriate, as we talked about. It's too bad. I wish, as you said, I think if it was tighter story and a little bit more funnier and a little bit more of a witty dialogue instead of some of the slapstick stuff, I think this could have definitely gone into rare antiquity territory. It's too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. Any other thoughts or? Uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I kind of felt the same as you. I, I liked it more as we started talking about it on the episode here. So, it, you know, it is kind of a shame. It's nice to find those layers, but yeah, it's kind of a shame. It didn't, it wasn't quite enough. I do find it strange that this movie does get a lot yeah. of very positive reviews as time has moved on. I'm wondering if this is the typical rose tinted backdoor <laughs> slamming <laughs> stuff of the Coen brothers being a little bit more successful and famous now yeah. that people will just give them a pass on anything. I do think you're right, though. I think there's some Coen brothers love that's uh, in goodwill that's sort of uh you know backwashing through time on this here I, I completely agree with that so that does it for today's episode raising arizona episode 14 so jeff what do you have in store for us next my penchant for cerebral science fiction will continue next week as we go back in time and go back in time again and go back in time again with the uh, 2004 indie effort primer primer sounds familiar who's in this one nobody you have ever heard of primer yeah interesting i've heard of this movie i can't recall if i've seen it so yeah interesting choice that'll be good yeah i think that'll be uh be a cool discussion it's i gotta get a couple of notebooks it's gonna take a a lot to deconstruct this sucker (laughs) all right well i'm looking forward to the conversation yeah all right. Well, uh, uh, I will see you next time. Cheers. Thanks for thanks for doing this, and uh, it was fun. All right, man. We'll see you next time. All right. Cheers.